Well, Happy New Year and welcome to Off the Beat, the podcast that discusses all things law enforcement from a cop's point of view. My name's DJ Seals. I'm a former detective, crime analyst, and SWAT operator from the metro Atlanta area. Now, I currently work for Motorola Solutions as a law enforcement consultant, but this podcast will never be about product or sales, and that I promise you. I came up with this idea because I wanted to have a place where we could have a conversation about current police issues without you, my listener, well, frankly, feeling like they were in a sales pitch. I wouldn't listen to that, and I'm sure you wouldn't either. So let's look at today's topic, policing methodologies. Now, before we dive right into the details of this topic, I have a question for you. What do Sun Tzu, Chinese military general, Sir Robert Peel, and Chief William Bratton have in common? The answer, they're all in this podcast today. (laughs) We're going to talk about every single one of them because I'm going to give you some ideas about where these came from. And yes, Sun Tzu is going to be in this and I'll explain why. So what do I mean by policing methodologies here? And why are we talking about this? Policing methodology is the, the why you do what you do. The, the backbone, the drive behind it. So we're going to talk about intelligence-led policing. Uh, we're going to talk about DDACs. We'll get into that. CompStat, as well as POP and COP. So five different methodologies. These aren't in any particular order of importance, although as we're going through, I'll explain which ones I think are used widely, which ones are on the uh, on the rise, and, and frankly, there, there's one that's starting to wane away. And these change all the time. As a matter of fact, one of these we'll speak about, you if you were in policing long enough, you'll remember that we used to do one of these back in, you know, 70s and 80s, and then kind of went somewhere else and now I see everybody going back toward it. So we'll dive into all of this today. We're going to talk about the history of these. Some have a little deeper history than others, but I think it's important to know where these came from and the roots of them. As we're going through, I task you to think to yourself, oh, yeah, okay, we, we do a little bit of that, we do a little bit of that. Oh, we hmm, hadn't thought about that piece. That, that might help us with, with this that we're dealing with today. You know, I've, I've, I speak to agencies all over the world, and I'll ask that question, what policing methodology do you use? If they have an answer, because many of them go, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's fine. But if they do, they're very solid on one of these, any any one of these, but they're very solid on that one. This is what we do. And because I teach this class so often, basically from the request of a lot of agencies, that what they find is, well, we don't really do that. We call it that, but that's not what we do. We actually do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that is fine. But I think here in the beginning of the year, 2020, right, we need to start the year on a level set of understanding where we are coming from. And as we set very clearly in in 2019, maybe we should change if it need be, right? We don't need to stay where we are just because, well, that's what the SOP says, and I guess we got to follow that. You do. (laughs) 
<laughs> but those documents can be changed and modified. So without further ado, let's dive right in. And we're going to start with intelligence-led policing, ILP. So this is not from a textbook. This is from DJ's mind, this first one. And I believe that intelligence-led policing began, and just hang out with me here, not a conspiracy theorist here, but I believe it started between 544 and 496 B.C. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, a lot of you were going, yeah, we knew he was going to go completely off the deep end at some point in these. Now, just follow me here. Sun Tzu, Chinese military general, wrote the book, The Art of War. If, if you've never read it, it's actually a pretty short read. Read it. Okay, you'll start to see a lot of uh, similarities in, in ILP. But Sun Tzu, one of the things he said was, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. And in the rest of the book, he talks about, first you have to know everything about you and your team, right? In his case, his, his, his army. What are our capabilities? Where are our weak links? What do we need to work on? Let's make sure our backyard is clean and tidy and, and we're, we've done all the training we need to do, that we're the best we can be. And then the most important thing to him was to know your adversary. And I know words like enemy and adversary are not cool in today's society. Let's be clear. When we're dealing with career criminals, murders, people who are robbing and raping and, and just aggravated assaults, those are not our friends. I'm just saying it straight, okay? I mean, how many times have you locked up your friends, right? We hope not to do that too much. But the point being is we have to understand the other side, our adversary. And our adversary is the criminal, right? The criminal element. Now, yes, I'm, I'm a big one on people can change. Huge one. I've seen it, lived it, still get people that see me in town that I locked up that say, hey, man, you know, just it's going to sound odd, but uh, I appreciate you treat me right. And, and now that I'm out, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good work. I've got my electrician's license. I mean, all these stories go on, and that just is fantastic. But... For those career criminals who are not going to change, what do you really know about them? Well, I would say that you know quite a bit. Why? Because you have intelligence at your fingertips. And that's what Sun Tzu was saying. So in my opinion, that was the first time, whether it be military or whether it be police, that we started thinking, what about the other side? What can we know about them? So then we're going to take a big jump in time. Late 1940s, intelligence, the digging end of the intelligence to, to learn what we can from what we have before we go into uh, you know, battle or investigation, depending, began to be used in law enforcement in the UK. Why? World War II. World War II was you know, cranking up. Uh, a lot of things were going over on over there, and, 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 and there were spies, and there were, oh, man, it was crazy. So they started digging into the uses of intelligence, okay? So that went on for quite a while. Then we're going to jump again. 1971, you see there's huge jumps in this. 
1971, the original blueprint from the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration of the DOJ, right, on intelligence-led policing. Blueprint. Kind of a, what would this look like if we were to suggest it roll out? Now, you'd think to yourself, well, why don't you make a blueprint? It's like building a house, right? You make a blueprint, you hire a contractor, you get this sucker going. Eh, that's not exactly true how this worked. That was 1971. Let's jump two years. 1973, there was a call to action for every law enforcement agency to create and maintain an intelligence capability. And this came from the National Advisory Commission on Criminal Justice Standards and Goals. Hey, all of you should do this. Yeah, how do you think that worked? <laughs> you know, we, we as, as, as local or state agencies uh, uh, or uh, county agencies, we, we don't take highly to, to the feds coming in and going, this is what you should do. We usually go, mm-hmm, oh, okay, sure, mm-hmm, yeah, and we just roll on, okay? Yeah, at some podcast, we'll talk about, you know, um, uh, sending information in to the, to the feds and how that's actually worked over time but nonetheless so there was a call for it but you know not a lot happened so we're going to jump another three years 1976 the intelligence standards were rewritten in response to intelligence abuses so you know some agencies picked up on this said hey we're going to start this but the, the, you know the standards were a little bit um broad right and, you know, it's always that one bad apple that ruins it for the rest of us. So there were some intelligence abuses. And so the standards are rewritten by the Law Enforcement Intelligence Unit Guidelines. Yes, indeed. You can look those up. They're still there. However, don't hang your hat on them because they're much changed now. So that was 1976. So let's jump into the 80s and 90s. So in the 80s and 90s, the Law Enforcement Intelligence Sharing System also known as the Criminal Intelligence System Operating Policies, 28 CFR Part 23, were penned, right? Ah, we, you know, you've got intelligence, you've got intelligence, you've got... It's kind of like an Oprah show. You get intelligence and you get intelligence, right? But, but we all had it, but nobody was sharing it. Think about that for a minute. That was the 80s and the 90s. How many of you are sharing today? Hmm, Yeah. So also, somewhere in the mid-80s, the formation of the International Association of Law Enforcement Intelligence Analysts, ILEA, yay, a group I've been a part of for a while and have been, been blessed to actually asked to come down and speak. Great folks. They actually formed in the mid-80s. So those of you who are going, I don't know if this intelligence thing is going to get off the ground. Maybe Do we need an analyst? I mean, anybody else doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much since the 80s. So get on the train. Uh, so the mid-late 90s, so we're jumping again. So now we're doing like these 10-year jumps here, right? So we're jumping again. And let's don't forget that back, back 15 years from where we're talking right now, the feds went, you should do this. <laughs> it took to the mid to late 90s that the feds started it. Well, that's interesting. So that was the implementation of the National Drug Intelligence Center, which many of us know, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, and the High Intensity Drug Traffic Area, so HIDAs. They began in the mid to late 90s. So we're slowly boarding this train that, frankly, has been around since, well, we won't go to Sun Tzu, but we'll say the 40s, right? Yeah, you know, 50 years, whatever. So then in March 2002... We should all know what happened there. 
In response to the attacks on September 11th, the ICP held an intelligence-sharing summit, and they examined the general criminal intelligence plan and the UK's national intelligence model, and they were like, well, what can we do with this, right? So in 2003, shortly after that, there was the creation of the Global Intelligence Working Group. That's right. Here we go. We're, we're doing a working group again, developed uh, by the National Criminal Intelligence Sharing Plan. Again, you can look that up. That's pretty close. You can follow that one. So again, we're, we're, we're going, well, we should put all this together. A lot of heads working on this, but not a lot of direction. And that's pretty much where the line stops on ILP. From that point on, we've been following those guidelines and everybody's been doing kind of what they're doing. So but what is ILP? As you can see, there's quite a bit of confusion on should we or shouldn't we or who will or who won't or when will we. And let's just define it here. ILP employs a strategic and collaborative approach, collaborative approach to crime control that is based on a sequence of data collection, high quality analysis of that data. You know, I always say data is not intelligence. It's what's inside the data that is the intelligence. So we have to do a high quality analysis of the data and the extraction of actionable intelligence from that data to target repeat offenders and criminal groups that are considered most dangerous to the community at large. Take that definition and maybe my theory on Sun Tzu isn't so crazy because that's exactly what he was saying. So intelligence-led policing rejects the acceptance that law enforcement is primarily reactive. Listen, we'll never get away from being reactive. Of course, right? 911 calls for service. That, that's going to happen. But we have enough intelligence to be proactive on recurring issues. And that's what ILP wants you to do. It focuses on the intelligence contained within your data and extracting the intelligence from your data allows you to become more proactive. So that's ILP in a nutshell. And many of you right now are going, well, that's what I do. I do ILP. Yeah, probably. Put a pin in it. Let's run over to DDAX. What is DDAX? DDAX is pretty popular in Florida, Michigan, places like that. Uh, Data-driven approach to crime and traffic safety. Hmm, yeah. So where did it come from? Well, 2009, it was implemented by the U.S. Department of Transportation National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Boy, we like these long names, don't we? But we call it NHTSA. And there were seven original pilot sites. So that's pretty much the history on DDAX. It's been rolling ever since. What's the definition? Because I've heard so many definitions about DDAX, uh, talked to so many chiefs and all about what they think it is, and, and, I, and I'm pulling these definitions straight from the people who created them. What did they intend them to be? And that's what I want us to be. What did they intend them to be, and what are we doing if we think we're doing, say, DDAX? So DDAX is grounded in community-based and evidence-based policing. Hmm. Community-based and evidence-based. And it suggests that the time and based policing is better. Time and place-based is better, as opposed to more traditional person-based. Hmm. They think that's more efficient as a focus of law enforcement actions. I'm not going to say whether it is or not, but understand the DDAX is based on time and place. The reason I say that is 
We do DDAX. We always take a look at the person and eh, scratch. Okay. Not a bad thing. I'm not saying what you're doing is bad. But I'm saying is when you pull in persons, when you pull in intelligence from criminal, long-term criminal organizations and pull the intel from that, that's a piece of ILP. Now, you may be doing the numbers by DDAX, but you've pulled in some ILP. Again, not bad. This is fantastic. I like a blending. So DDAX also says that often crime and car crashes occur near the same location. Many crimes involve the use of a vehicle. Okay, Traffic stops can yield criminal identification and arrests, and that results in decreased crime and improved traffic safety. They also believe that many violators do not have a valid driver's license or legally registered vehicle, which obviously uh, gets you uh, a, a lot more uh, opportunity on the traffic stop. Evidence-based policing is a method of making decisions about what works in policing, which practices and strategies accomplish you know, police missions most cost-effectively. In contrast to basing decisions on theory, assumptions, tradition, or convention, an evidence-based approach continuously tests hypotheses with empirical research findings. That little piece at the end that they put in there, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of people doing. What that says is, do what works. Start this. If that didn't work, try something else. I don't see a lot of that. You know, I, I, I spoke to a chief once about DDAX. And we were talking about it and everything. And I said, well, what, chief, sum it up for me, man. How, how are you doing this? And he goes, it's simple. It's simple. He goes, wherever there's crime, you put your traffic guys. Then crime goes down. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I said, are, are, are you uh, making arrests on that particular crime? No, no, not necessarily. We're just you know, flooding the area. And I said, well, do you find that it just moves? Well, yeah. So you're just jumping to the next location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, could you blend in a little bit of the uh, what is going on with that particular crime series along with DDAX to say, hey, while you're out, you're looking for this vehicle. Take a, you know, keep a watch on that particular house. We think it's a drug house or whatever that may be. And he's like, I don't, I don't know if we want to do that. I mean, we just want to do that. You know what? If it works for him, it works for him. But that's why I like to blend, because I like a little piece of DDAX. I don't like all of DDAX, be frankly with you, but, but I like a little piece of it there, right? I do believe that putting officers in high crime areas, right, you know, affects crime. Let's go back. Let's go back to our training. Sorry, we're going to go back to uh, post-academy here real quick. First level of officer force, presence. Remember, we all, we all learned that. We just seem to have forgotten it. So it's true that simply by being there will affect the crime. Well, so that's a good thing. So that's DDAX. There we go. So we, talk, we talked about Sun Tzu. Time to talk about William Bratton. Comstat. Comstat is, <laughs> Comstat is like the... It is a brand now, really. I mean, everybody thinks of it that way, right? Uh, think about those tissues you use to uh, when you have a runny nose. I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to pay anybody for the name. But you know, ex a name popped immediately into your head. The thing is, it's probably not what you're using because that's a brand name, right? That that particular soda 
that is uh, that is made in Atlanta, that is extremely popular worldwide. Okay, it is a brand, but it has become a term for everything under that umbrella. And I see that CompStat is the same. So many agencies, this is our CompStat meeting. Uh, would you like to come to our CompStat meeting? Yeah, sure, I'll come to your CompStat meeting. You know how many times I've seen CompStat in a CompStat meeting? Yeah, pretty much none. <laughs> because that's just what we call it. We call it a CompStat meeting. Computer statistic, really? You're doing a CompStat meeting? So we have to think about this. So let's let's dive into CompStat because many of you, your ears just perked up. Well, we have a CompStat meeting. We do CompStat. Well, let's see if you do. So CompStat began in 1994. Police Commissioner, NYPD, William Bratton, introduced CompStat. Okay. In 1999 to 2000, over a third, very quick move, over a third of U.S. law enforcement agencies with 100 or more officers claimed to be using CompStat. No joke. But, but keep in mind the caveat I put on in the beginning. A lot of people have just called it CompStat. We'll get into the definition in just a minute. Did you also know that there's a city stat and a state stat? Oh, yes. In 2000, Baltimore, Maryland started something called city stat. It's basically CompStat, but over the entire city. The city works, right? And in 2007, the state of Maryland said, well, we're going to start this state stat. Same thing, whole state on the state's works, right? Not necessarily law enforcement, but what is the state of the state or the state of the city? Hmm. Very interesting how that how that moved out. So what is the definition of CompStat? What really is it? The CompStat model is a management process within a performance management framework that synthesizes the analysis of crime and disorder data strategic problem solving, and clear accountability. If you've ever been to one of these in New York, and if you haven't, if you're badge law enforcement, you can actually ask to go. Um, it, I, I would do it. Go. Especially if you're using, you can't see my air quotes, comp stat. Okay. It might really blow your mind. So, it is based on accurate and timely intelligence. So, these happen at a, at a minimum, every 28 days, but many agencies running pure CompStat will run these every seven days, and then 28 is the big, is the big report, right? So accurate and timely intelligence, effective tactics, rapid deployment, and relentless follow-up and assessment. Notice it didn't really talk about the approach to crime. It, it talks about the management structure on how we're going to handle this. What I mean by that is CompStat's kind of like this. Lieutenant, you're in charge of Zone 2. Tell me everything that happened in Zone 2. Go! And he gives us a report. And, he, well, we had this many of this and this many of this, and we're up here and we're up there. And what do you plan to do about the up? Well, we have this plan. So the lieutenant or whomever has to come to the meeting with a plan already baked. We're up here. What are we going to do? I have to report that. Well, we're going to do this plan. And they'll say, okay, you're going to do this plan. All right, report back to us in seven days. Or again, some agencies are 28. Okay? And then when he comes back into that next meeting, he has to report. How did it go? Did it work? Did it not work? If it didn't work, what did you change? It's all about the management. The ones who are at the, the head of the tip of the spear, if you will. 
right? How are they doing what they're doing and keeping them accountable for the numbers? Hmm. So based on that, are you doing Comstat? Hmm. We'll see. Let's jump on to problem-oriented policing. POP. Late 70s, researchers and police began to construct the original framework for POP from the University of Wisconsin. They coined the term. Okay, so we'll get into what it is in a minute. Early 80s, early experiments in Madison, Wisconsin, Baltimore, Maryland, and London were actually going on. Well, is this POP going to work? The problem-oriented policing. So what is it? Problem-oriented policing points out the limitations of random patrol response and follow-up, right? Just driving around hoping you'll run into something. We've spoken about that before, okay? It pointed out that and said, well, you know, just, just be in your zone probably doesn't work anymore. So problem-oriented policing emphasizes the use of analysis and assessment to address crime and disorder. So we're back to analysis here. Hmm, that's kind of like, we're not really reinventing the wheel here, are we? It follows what's called the Sarah Principle. Sarah is scanning, analysis, review, and assessment. So scanning, the first piece, identifying recurring problems of concern to the public and the police. Two, identifying the consequences of the problem for the community and the police. Notice we're bringing in the community now. And prioritizing those problems. Which of these problems that we have today has the highest consequences for the community and the police, boom, it's number one. And then determining how frequently the problem occurs and how long it has been taking place. Very important. Then we go to analysis. Identifying and understanding the events and conditions that precede and accompany the problem. Ah, see, I like this piece. It's a lot about it, kind of like intelligence, where you're going in and going, but is there something that's causing it? What's the cause? What's the effect? Every time the carnival comes to town, we have an increase in X. Simple example, but that's what we're talking about. We're going to research what is known about the problem. What do we have? That's called intelligence. They call it research what is known about the problem type. I call it, do your intelligence work? Um, taking inventory of how the problem is currently addressed and the strengths and limitations of the current response. So what are we doing about it now? Is it working? Why not? What can we do to change that? Identifying a variety of resources that may be of assistance in developing a deeper understanding of the problem. Who else can we bring in here? What other information do we not have? And you're starting to see a little bit of CompStat here, aren't you? Right? Well, uh, taking inventory about how the problem is, uh, is addressed. What are we currently doing? Is it working? But notice, this is a team effort. This is not a lieutenant, what are you going to do? Right? And then we get to response brainstorming for new interventions. Literally, what should we do? Anybody have an idea? Completely wide open. Nobody slammed for something crazy. We're going to search for what other communities with similar problems have done, outline a response plan, and identifying responsible parties. In other words, who's going to do this? And carrying out the planned activities. Now, the response on this can be a little long, in my opinion. Every once in a while, I'm going to give an opinion. I've given quite a few throughout this. I think that can take a little bit too long. We can plan way too long uh, and, 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 and fail to act. So if you're going to do the response part of the Sarah principle, do it quickly, please. <laughs> 30 minutes to an hour and move. I'm all about tactical movement, right? Move today. Attack today. Do what we need to do with the plan today. 
And then finally, assessment. So we've done all those things. We're going to carry out our planned activities, but now we're going to determine whether the plan was implemented. No joke. That's their first step. I love that. I'm, this is from their data. That's their first step. In other words, did we do it? Are you kidding me? You better have done it. That should be like, but anyway, go off on a tangent here. But their first step on assessment is determining whether the plan was implemented. Kidoki. And then collecting pre and post response qualitative and quantitative data. In other words, did it work? Did it not work? Why? We're going to identify any new strategies needed to augment the original plan. I love that. I live in that world. It worked. Do it more. It didn't work. Change it. Right? And then we're going to conduct ongoing assessments to ensure continued effectiveness. So we're not just going to let it spin off on its own and hope it works. We're going to continually dig into that. That is problem-oriented policing. So we're focusing on the problem. And not just the problem to police, but the problem to police and the community. Mm, working with community. And then the last one. And I've put this as last because this is the one that I see increasing heavily. Okay? Very, very heavily today. And, and we'll talk about why. And it's community-oriented policing. Those of you who've been around a long time in policing know, you're like, well, we did that in the 80s. Yes, you did. <laughs> you sure did. And we're back. Okay? So the last of my trio here, Sir Robert Peels. Yeah, I told you I'd bring all three of them in. Where did this start? Well, 1788 to 1850, Sir Robert Peel lived, and he said, one of his quotes was, the police are the public, and the public are the police. Let that soak in for a minute. Every single cop that's listening to me today, okay, is a citizen, has a family, you know, has, has, has hobbies, has something they do outside of policing, right? We are the public, but we're also the police. Now, why did he say that? Well, he said that back in the time where literally the, the public was the police. I mean, you'd be walking down the street and go, well, Bob, you're a pretty upstanding citizen. Would you like to be a constable? Uh, sure. Why not? Wasn't really a paid position. You still kept your job doing whatever you were doing, but you were also the police. But Sir Robert Peel said, we need to keep it that way. The, the police need to continue to be the public and the public need to have a connection with the police. Do you see why we're bringing this one back all of a sudden? Yes. You know, it, listen, it, it, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know when I tell you that we've got some issues with trust with the public. We do. Okay. I, I've got another podcast planned for this year. We're going to talk heavily about that. And I'm going to be very opinionated. And I expect you to answer me on that one. But, but he's saying... We already are. Keep that connection. That's the way to effectively police. Because then trust is there. Because they know you. They, they're not afraid to reach out to you. That kind of deal. Okay? 1899. Let's jump. The first vehicle was used in policing in Akron, Ohio. What? You have gone off the rails again, DJ. No, follow me. COP, COP, believes that that was the beginning of the separation between the public and the police. 
Were they necessary? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to tell you that we should go to walk in the beat again. Some cities can. Sure. I mean, I, I see that everywhere I go. But in general, cities are too big. I mean, let's face it. When Sir Robert Peel was walking the earth, you could probably walk most of the city <laughs> in the shift. Not a problem, right? Not anymore. I mean, we got counties here in Georgia that are three, 400 square miles. You're not walking that, right? So they were necessary, but Cobb believes that that began the separation, right? I used to have an old captain that said, when you're patrolling, I don't care if it's August in Georgia. I don't care if it's cold outside. Your windows are down and your music radio, not your police radio, your music radio, your tunes are off. He said, you need to be connected with the public. And, and he was right. So in the early 1900s, police supervisors began to assign officers to frequently rotating shifts in various geographic areas. That's right. Shifts came in and they didn't call them at the time, but like zones, beats, and districts started to come in. Why? Because they wanted those officers to know that zone, beat, or district. They wanted the people in the zone, beat, or district to know the officer. They wanted that symbiotic nature. Then we're going to jump to the 70s. 911. 911 system comes in, increasing the, avail uh, the ability for the public to report incidents. Right? Anybody here remember before 911 where you had to call like the police main line? Uh, right? 911, easy, boom. Matter of fact, most smartphones now have a button on them. I hit it accidentally the other day, <laughs> putting my phone into my car mount, and it called 911. Sorry. But 911 began, increased the ability for public to report the incidents, which increased the calls for service, which left less time for preventative patrols. Ah! The development of 911 allowed more calls to come in, but now that more calls come in, how can you be proactive? Whew. That's that's kind of where we live today, isn't it? That's, that's where we live today. You know, the national average, I don't know if you know this or not, but the national average last time I checked it, and I check it pretty often, is 75-25 uh, between calls and reports. So calls being everything comes in as a call, right? Call for service. A report is, I need to write a report, based on the fact that this is an actual crime. It's 75-25, meaning 75% of everything we're called to do just simply remains a call. In other words, gone on arrival, no action necessary, civil question, unless you're one of those agencies that has the officer write a report on everything, which, by the way, I think you're totally off the rails. But 75-25, what do you think that was? Before 911, I am not disparaging 911. I love 911. It saves lives. I'm just saying, as communities and populations and cities grow, and I've never spoken to a police agency that ever told me anywhere on the planet, oh, we got all the officers we can handle. Couldn't handle a single one more. No, everybody's doing the work more with less, right? Hmm, that's something we're going to have to deal with if we're going to go back to cop. And then in 75, San Diego police began several research studies, including a community-oriented policing project, started to really dive into this. So what is it? The definition, community policing is a philosophy that promotes organizational strategies which support the systematic use of partnerships and problem-solving techniques. Partnerships and problem-solving techniques. We've heard a lot about problem-solving techniques. Partnerships. 
Who do they mean? Well, we'll get into that in a minute. So these partnerships and problem-solving techniques proactively address the immediate conditions that give rise to public safety issues such as crime, social disorder, and fear of crime. What is fear of crime? I'm probably going to go off on that on another podcast as well. Don't have a lot of time today for that. Fear of crime is the perception of crime. Do your citizens feel safe? Whether they are or not, do they feel safe? Right? That's what COP is talking about. Do they have the safety feeling? Okay? So who else are we going to bring in? Well, other government agencies. You name it whether it be fire or EMS or the mayor's office or the council, community members, community groups, nonprofits, service providers, private business, and as much as it pains me to say it, the media. The media can help. Let's be frank. The media can also hurt, right? The way to get the media to help the best is for you, the officer, to be upfront on it. Give it to them. Bam. Form, frame the, 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 the story for them, right? Don't lie. Don't make junk up. But I'm just saying, be at the front of that because they can actually be a help. How many people today get their news from Facebook? Too many, right? That's why so many agencies are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of them because they are the source of truth. And that's how that's done that way. Community-oriented policing, that's right down that line. Sir Robert Peel would love that, okay? He'd be on Facebook today. <laughs> I'm guaranteeing you. So those are the five top policing methodologies. Which one do you do? Be willing to bet that right now, even though when we started, you might go, well, we do this one. Your brain's going, all of them? <laughs> Sure, fine. You probably do a little piece of all of them. But then does that cause you to start thinking about, well, we're a, we're a CompStat agency, but we're not really a CompStat agency. What does it all mean? What's a really important part about this? The important part is to make sure that when you're putting together your goals and your strategies that you truly understand where they're coming from and the other functions of some of these. As I was going through, you might have thought, well, I, I knew about community-oriented policing, but I didn't realize that they also wanted us to bring in uh, community members and groups and private businesses. And man, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. Think about this as we go into 2020, right? Reform if you need to. Figure that out. Hey, if you heard something today you think might help, and you want to hit me up for more information because this was just an overview, right? Just, you know how to hit me up. We'll go over that here in a minute. Let me know. I'll be glad to help you out. But a methodology doesn't define you forever. A methodology should define the time. And now let's take a look at some crazy but true Police blotter stories. Silver Springs, Florida. Three men broke into a home and discovered what they believed to be three jars of cocaine. Because that happens a lot. People just have jars of cocaine sitting around their house. Well, they took it home and promptly snorted all of the contents. 
They weren't feeling very well. They weren't getting high. And that's when they discovered that the jars were not jars. They were urns. Yeah. It wasn't cocaine. It, it, it was people. Mm -hmm. Beaver Creek, Ohio. As a man was robbing a bank, he passed out. Fell out on the floor. The teller called 911 and asked for medics. The teller called 911 to help the guy that was trying to rob her. But he was quite determined. While the ambulance was on its way, the suspect began to rouse, still groggy and laying on the ground, and went ahead and handed the note to the teller demanding all her cash. Dude, you are not in a position to be robbing a bank on your back. Nashville, Tennessee. A man thought he was having a heart attack. So, thinking this was the end, he confessed to a 17-year-old murder to responding emergency personnel. <laughs> Guess what, folks? He wasn't having a heart attack. He was just having indigestion. He was sentenced to life in prison. How you like that one? What are you in for, buddy? How'd they get you? Uh, I, I confessed while I was having a heart attack that was just indigestion. Ugh, that dude's going to have a, an interesting life in prison. Bithlow, Florida. Following a dispute, a man allegedly tossed a Molotov cocktail at his neighbor's trailer home. I could stop right there, and that could be the end of the story, couldn't it? But no. You see, he threw this in heavy winds in Florida. And just as the wind shifted, he threw it, sending the embers from the cocktail not to his neighbor's trailer, but to his own, setting it on fire. He was promptly arrested, which I guess gave him a place to stay, since his trailer was in ashes. And Iowa City, Iowa. A man who worked as a bouncer at a local bar had his driver's license stolen. Man, that's, that's, that's a pain. But did you catch I said he was a bouncer at a local bar? Yeah, you guessed it. A few days later, the thief showed up at the bar brandishing the bouncer's very own license as his form of ID. Yeah, you gotta love it. That's, that's one section that I'll never run out of topics for because we never run out of stupid criminals. You know, as we go along this journey together, I may say some things you don't agree with, or maybe you do agree with me and even have a topic you'd like me to cover. Or maybe you have a funny police story you'd like to share with me. I encourage you to email me at offthebeat at MotorolaSolutions.com. Give me your thoughts and ideas. And check out my Twitter page at DJ underscore offthebeat. Until next time, stay diligent, stay educated, and stay safe.